0: Live from Chicago, this is Bruce Dumont with our Beyond the Beltway analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by Peter Hanna, Ray Hanania, Michael Lotus, and Randall Sanborn. Our program tonight, Company of Tomorrow, Base at the Museum of Broadcast Communications in Chicago, where our toll-free lines are open at one 800 723 Eighty two eighty nine. That's one eight hundred seven two three eighty two eighty nine. If you'd like to email me a comment, it's bruce dumont at museum tv. Want to tweet me a comment? It's at dumo at d u m o. Of course, you can join us on the world wide web at BeyondTheBeltway.com, The radio and the television version of this show each and every week. If you missed it, it's there for a long, long time. And of course, you can join us now live on Facebook. Find us live on Facebook right now at Beyond the Beltway with Bruce Dumont. And again, if you. Want to uh, offer questions via Facebook? Uh, we're taking those questions as well. Another full two hours for you this evening. Uh, in the second hour this evening, we're going to be talking about the upcoming California primary coming up on Tuesday. That's late in the second hour of this evening. But tonight, I do want to talk about a variety of issues. And one of the big issues of this past week was the, the use of the presidential pardon. A couple of weeks ago, the president uh, he uh, gave a pardon uh, to Jack Johnson. Uh, Uh, which we discussed last week on this program. And this past week, it was uh, Dennis D'Souza uh, who received a pardon and also other names that were mentioned. He mentioned that he might commute the sentence of Rod Blagojevich, the former governor of Illinois, and also said that he may pardon uh, Martha Stewart. Now, in those couple of those cases, uh, uh, the names James Comey and Robert Mueller were involved in those cases, so whether this is an attempt to embarrass them Uh, Some people may speculate that it is, and of course some people have also suggested that when the president talks about pardon, what he's really doing is he's sending a signal to those that are involved, friends of his now, uh, who conceivably could uh, be under some uh, legal problems in the future, and that that's what this is all about. But whatever it is... Pardons computations. Uh, it was a story last week. I, I assume it's going to be a story for the next couple of weeks because I don't think the president would raise those possibilities if he wasn't seriously thinking about it. Randall Sanborn joins us tonight, making his first appearance. Randall, nice to have you with us on Beyond the Beltway. For 20 years, you worked for the United States Justice Department in the Northern District of Illinois. You worked for five U.S. attorneys, in, in, including uh, Patrick Fitzgerald, who sent Rod Blagojevich uh, to the jail, uh, to uh, a prison, and also uh, a Scooter Libby. You were involved in that case as well. So as a, as a longtime Justice Department guy, you're now in, in, in private practice and strategic communications. What's your reaction to all the discussions of pardons and whether or not the president is perhaps using them for political purposes?
1: Bruce, I think we can all agree that the president's powers to pardon or commute sentences are extremely broad, and and that's appropriate. Mm -hmm. But what I'm concerned about is the way it's happened so far appears to me to disrespect the process that's involved in using that power, and that disrespect of the process can have the effect of undermining principles of law and order and respect for the law, and I think that's a concern. Ray Hannity
0: also joins us, a longtime political journalist in the city of Chicago, and a frequent guest on this show. Ray, what's your take on uh, on these on the use of the pardon?
2: We spend more time talking about the pardon of a political person than we do about uh, criminals and killers who've been pardoned, who've gotten lo- less jail time than Robert Blagojevich. Uh, those are the things that are just amazing to me. That we're this is a political discussion, and it shouldn't be. It should be one of justice. I think that. I don't believe that uh, uh, President Trump is really playing politics. Comey and Mueller were probably involved in uh, thousands of cases over the last 10 years. So um, anybody he pardons in that period is going to come up. So I don't think he's trying to get back at them. I think that the Blagojevich case deserves a pardon, and I think he's giving it serious thought.
0: Well, he's giving a computation serious thought. He didn't say pardon for that. But on, on the issue of whether justice was fair, I mean, in the Blagojevich case, uh, Peter Hanna also joins us, an attorney. Isn't that case really about the, 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 the length of the sentence? I mean, I don't think anybody is questioning that Rod Blagojevich maybe did some things that, d- that he deserved to go to prison for. But is, is, is 14 years the right sentence?
3: I mean, I think this is why we have a jury and obviously a court process, and I agree with what Randy said. Um, And I find some of the remarks that um, President Trump has made have been uh, somewhat alarming in this context. He said that, you know, um, Blagojevich, and this is a direct quote, shouldn't have been put in jail. Um, And ultimately, I think a lot of the pardon power, which is broad, and I agree uh, the president has a lot of authority to exert it in ways that he deems fit, Um, It's being used by this president to diminish the impact and the significance of political corruption, Um, and I think Blagojevich was really kind of a a poster boy for that in a lot of ways. Uh, Michael Lotus also joins us. He's our card-carrying Trumpster tonight. Uh, You're you're also an
0: attorney. Your reaction to uh, the pardon and how it's being played at the moment by the president and reaction by his opponents?
4: Pardon is a unique power of the president. It's literally something that goes back to the Middle Ages when the king could pardon people, and... Uh, every president makes his own unique uh, kind of uh, approach to doing it. The the pardon, I think, the pardon of J- Jack Johnson is a most interesting one to me, because it's been hanging around for many years, and that plays into what I think is one of Trump's long-term goals, which is to try to increase his uh, interest in black voters, African American voters, in his possible reelection. Mm-hmm. And this is a sort of symbolic gesture on his part. It's weird also that why is he talking about Blagojevich if he's not going to do it? Uh, right. It seems kind of cool no, almost. Gonna, he, a, he's going to do it, but a guy's sitting in prison, and you say, maybe I'll let you out. <laughs> so to, do it or don't, And um, as to his rationale for it, who knows what his actual rationale is. Well,
1: and that's that's important, I think. But, Bruce, if I could give some context. So when George Ryan was convicted as our former governor and was sentenced to six years in prison, a lot of people thought, oh, that's such a long time for a sitting governor. When Rod Blagojevich was sentenced to 14 years, people said that's such a long, long time to sentence somebody to for public corruption. And people don't take sight of the fact that, Um, After Rod Blagojevich was sentenced, former Detroit Mayor Kwame Kilpatrick, an African-American public official, was sentenced to 28 years in federal prison for public corruption crimes, twice as long as Blagojevich. And what I'm really concerned about is when I look at the list of people that you've mentioned and their celebrity status, are the 184,000 federal inmates, all of whom left families behind, all of whom have hardships, all of whom may have some compelling case... But they're not being heard because they don't have the access that Bogoevich and Martha Stewart had. And what about Martha Stewart's co-defendant, who also was sentenced for leaking inside trader information? And Dinesh D'Souza pleaded guilty to his crimes. He admitted Mm -hmm. he was at fault, and he's being pardoned as if that crime never happened. So I think you have to look at the broad context to understand and then break down, and you can look at Blagojevich's sentence. I don't say throw him in prison and throw away the key by any means. I understand reasonable people can have difference of opinion over whether 14 years is too long or not, maybe or maybe not. But you have to look at what got him there, and then it begins to make sense. Well, let me,
0: let me do, do a follow-up. Mm-hmm. A lot of people would say that, that one of the reasons why he got 14 years was that on, on, his, on his way to the judge's chamber— Uh, He used almost a year and a half to embarrass and point fingers at the Justice Department. Uh, And and frankly, uh, they had to make an example of him and that that's why he got 14 years. I want to get your reaction to that, because I think that's a popular perception. I know, Ray, you want to weigh in on that as well. 1-800-723-8029. If you have comments about the pardon power of the President of the United States and whether he's using it wisely or whether he's using it as a political carrot or stick, I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight on Beyond the Beltway.
5: Goodman Theater presents Having Our Say, the incredible true story of the Delaney sisters, the trailblazers, activists, and best friends who lived past 100, from the Jim Crow South to the Harlem Renaissance. Their historic journey is an inspiring story of triumphing over prejudice in times of social unrest. Having Our Say, directed by Chuck Smith at Goodman Theater, May 5th through June 10th. Tickets at goodmantheater.org.
0: Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. Uh, Randall Samborn joins us. Twenty years with the U.S. Justice Department. I worked for the Northern District of Illinois, and also uh, was very much involved in the Rod Blagojevich case, which is what we're talking about briefly. And you are going to explain to the audience why 14 years?
1: Right. And, and as I said, Bruce, reasonable people can disagree whether that's an appropriate sentence or not. But it started after his conviction with a finding that the federal sentencing guidelines were at a range of 30 years to life. And following that finding, Judge Zagel made additional findings in which he reduced the guideline range eventually to 151 to 188 months. And that's the reasonable presumptive range of where the sentence should fall. So a sentence of 168 months fell squarely within that range. And to get to that range, one of the key things that drove the sentence as high as it did was the finding and the evidence at trial that the governor was scheming to obtain a $1.5 million benefit for himself if he appointed then-Representative Jesse Jackson, Jr. to the vacated United States Senate seat. So once we got to that range, I would point out that people don't often realize that the governor got a benefit in that range because Judge Zagel, at the time he sentenced him, gave him the benefit of accepting responsibility, which is really extraordinary. That had the effect of, in fact, lowering the potential sentence that he could receive in addition to all the things of made it higher, the acceptance of responsibility finding was a credit to Blagojevich. And it's ironic because we've seen him come before Judge Zagel and appear to be contrite and recognizing that he had nobody to blame but himself and he's why he was there and the words he spoke. But on the other hand, everything he's done in his appeals and his his public relations campaign since then has been to to throw out his contriteness and his acceptance of responsibility and claim that he was unfairly prosecuted and unfairly convicted and he did no wrong
0: okay now because of because of the new tactic Mm -hmm. using where where he's criticizing the justice department do you think ray that that's that that's basically the case that maybe caught the president's ear. The president likes to hear that. The president is saying those things himself now.
2: I think he knew him from The Apprentice, and I think that there was some lobbying on his part. I'm sure that the headlines caught Trump's attention, but I really think— Wall Street Journal bed ed piece. Right, but Mm -hmm. I I think it was—I think Trump knows this guy, and um, I think that I just so disagree with this prosecution. Um, How much—did he use any drugs? No. Did he have a weapon? Did he shoot somebody? Did he kill somebody? What we do have is this uh, argument that in politics where everybody trades influence and you do something for me, I scratch your back, you scratch my back, they put a price on it. He, did he get a dollar? Did he get one cent? He got nothing out of it. So they And I know the argument is, well, we stopped him from a nuclear holocaust. I don't buy that argument. I, I think it was wrong. And this man was the most hated guy in Illinois by both parties. And to me, we play the politics side now saying that, well, we're going to give him the benefit. You know, the reason he's getting the benefit of the doubt is because Trump is playing politics. I think politics was played when this guy was brought before the court. He was unfairly tried. No, but now but, – but, but, Ray, now – because of everything that you've
0: just said, he should what, be out. whether whether people agree with it or not, but what I'm saying is, right now, Rod Blagojevich represents a tool, a tool for the yes. president. I'm okay now. Rod Blagojevich and Patty, who was on this show, his wife, I get several it. weeks ago, and I think it was great case. that
2: Randall got his right. side a little bit that's into right. this to she, offset hers. That's right. She
0: made her case. She's made it on Fox. The point is, she got the president's ear at the moment. We think. Okay, I don't think the president would have said what he said if he isn't going to do something. They're but here's too- the other here, here, here's where he can become a great tool for the president, because now the uh, enemies of Rod exactly. Blagojevich are the enemies Listen. of Donald Trump, and we all know that when Rod Blagojevich, when he gets out, he's going to be a media. He's going to be all mm-hmm. over the place. Mm-hmm. Peter, do you think? Do you think he's going to use that new opportunity? Is he going to be contrite when he gets out, or is he going to be somewhat vindictive? And basically, his, his utterances about his own case, people are going to be viewing that he's also out there making a case for the president, that he's been treated poorly by the special prosecutor.
3: I think all the contrition that Judge Sable, Judge Sable saw that Randall talked about will disappear. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he's going to use the platform if he does get out um, you know, to benefit himself and speak on behalf of this president. Um, one of the issues here that I think is underneath the surface of everything is, you know, that the op-ed in the Wall Street Journal on Monday, Blagojevich wrote that, I'm in prison for practicing politics. So I think one of the weird themes here is the normalization of what Blagojevich did, which is, you know, basically attempt to sell or barter a Senate seat that belonged to 11.8 million Illinoisans uh, for a price tag. Um, And I think, you know, the president referring to that or remarking to that is, yeah, just, you know, it's just politics as usual. It just sets up a really dangerous precedent, it's just the the next in line of normalization of really odd and unacceptable things.
0: One last question to you, Michael. In your view, what are the politics of this? In other words, if Rod Blagojevich gets out and and literally goes out there and and is all over the media complaining about the Justice Department, there's going to be a lot of people who say, aha, that's what's happening to the president right now. Is that a benefit? Is that a plus or a minus to the president. I, I'm
4: puzzled by this. It seems like a wrong step by Trump. Um, the idea that Ron Blagojevich is going to be running around somehow associated with Donald Trump. Blagojevich is not an appealing guy, even if you think his sentence was unfair. And the idea that he's now going to be the, the man people are asking about. I, the, president Trump has done all kinds of things. Why selected no
0: governor of Illinois. Uh, uh,
4: yeah, but he, look, he was a bad actor, but he was uh, inept enough to get caught. And I think there's a lot of corruption that goes on in Illinois, but Blagojevich just didn't know how to do things in a way that would keep him out of trouble. And what
1: we haven't talked about is the deterrent reasoning behind sentencing. And we have to look at the history and context of what's happened in Illinois. And we have to look at when we prosecute public officials for corruption and they don't get the message and we keep prosecuting public officials that it takes – unfortunately, longer and longer sentences to drive home the message. I would hope that anyone who's thinking that if if Blagojevich's sentence is ended early, that that's going to be a ticket for them to engage in acts of public corruption and that they're going to have what is essentially the same dumb luck of ending up on a TV show and becoming friends with the host who later becomes president. And that's really what's putting him in this position. I think
2: it's just the opposite. I think the signal it sends out is that uh, Rod Blagojevich was an outsider, hated by everybody, and that that's why he was targeted. So the corruption that you're talking about in Illinois is an insider's game. That's where the focus is. None of those people are going to say, oh, geez, look what happened to Blagojevich. The best thing is let's be part of the inside, do what we continue to do, and no one is
1: going to bother us. I'd love to talk talk about the facts more because, Ray, you just hit on one of the key mischaracterizations, I think, of the case, which is the Justice Department goes around and targets politicians, whether it's Blagojevich or Trump or whoever it might be. There has to be predication. There has to be a basis to open an investigation. No, that's not true. You and and, I have known each other 25 years. we had allegations from... The governor's father in law, that he was selling seats on public boards for campaign contributions.
2: You and I have known each other for 25 years. There's nothing personal here, but I will say when I served during the Vietnam War, the day I got out, what was the first thing that happened? The FBI opens an investigation into me, not because there's any evidence that I'm doing anything, but because I'm Arab and they spent two years trying to figure out whether I'm a terrorist or not. And I'm not blaming you, but I'm saying, don't tell me that the Justice Department does things because it's based on facts all the time. It's not.
0: Let's go to Kathy in El Paso, listening to us on KTSM. Go ahead, Kathy. Hello? Kathy, are you there? Kathy, going once, going twice, speak. OK, we're going to move on. Uh, let's let's uh, let's let's kind of switch gears. One of the other uh, big stories uh, th- this past week is uh, the 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 battle that's going on between uh, President Trump and his supporters referring to Spygate about an FBI informant that was uh, engaged <clears throat> in investigating uh allegations of possible russian involvement during the campaign the president has said this is a this is a spy michael lotus do you buy the word the use of the word spy or was the fbi doing what they generally would normally do if there was a, a, a possibility of some crime being committed against an individual
4: i, I don't have specific professional expertise on that question. I've looked at Andy McCarthy and National Review, Kim Strassel. Both of them seem pretty knowledgeable. And the indication I'm getting is that what was done was outside the normal set of practices. I'd like to know what the law is that authorizes you to place an informant in a political campaign um, and what level of um, suspicion you need to have and who needs to approve that. So I'm not seeing some of the questions answered that I'd like to see to understand how this was permitted to happen at all.
3: I think there are a lot of questions as to the timing um, here because what I understand the FBI was doing was it was pursuing an open investigation into someone who had ties with foreign nations that were, you know, foreign powers that were trying to undermine or affect elections in the United States. And I think in investigating that, that person, or those persons ended up becoming part of this political campaign um, at a time, obviously of a presidential election that was very heated and very um, obviously, you know, a lot was going on. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, is just, you know, in terms of legality, um, the FBI and the Department of Justice have the authority to continue the investigation. They're not going to stop if the investigation and the individual they're investigating ends up joining a campaign. And that's, that's I think, what happened, although I think we're still waiting for more information. Randall?
1: Well, I I think uh, Representative Trey Gowdy debunked the notion that there was a spy uh, and that the the notion of spygate has been a contrived uh, PR strategy of the presidents rather than legally grounded. Um, In public corruption investigations, Bruce, you have to use either confidential informants or surveillance to be able to get inside of corrupt deals. Otherwise, the corruption would flourish if you could not penetrate what people do behind closed doors.
0: We're going to pause 1-800-723-8029 from coast to coast and border to border. I'm Bruce Dumont. Are you planning for the day when you can retire to your dream home in Palm Springs, California? A day surrounded by spectacular scenery, golf courses, a rich cultural life, and great dining? If you are, you'll need a guide, someone who knows where to look, an experienced broker, someone who knows the desert communities of Southern California and all they have to offer. That person is Brian Beard, who's been making dreams come true for over 13 years, selling over $100 million in real estate, including celebrity and architecturally significant homes to the rich and famous, and more importantly, to people just like you. Brian's company, Caldwell Banker, has agents worldwide, but Brian Beard is your man in Palm Springs. Call Brian now at 760 760- 799 7096 that's 760 799 7096 or visit him online at bryan sells the desert.com no I don't get it I'm um, back German. in Chicago we're talking about uh, whether or not the uh, informant uh, that in the case of uh, uh, the president was he a, an informant or uh, was he a spy? The president has used the word spy, but again, uh, Trey Gowdy, who was a well-respected member of Congress, uh, you know, loved by many conservatives. Last week, as Randall said, uh, basically sort of let him off the hook when he said that uh, it was it was what he expected uh, the FBI uh, to do. Uh, let me ask one quick question. Then we're going to go to calls uh, or and also take a. Actually, we got a Facebook comment. Uh, Fritz, can we put that Facebook comment up? Uh, David uh, Rodriguez uh, is sending this note. How many people are left in the Justice Department to review pardons? you know anything about the process of well, pardoning Well, there?
1: I do know about the process, and it's actually it's, – it's quite rigorous. And it, the things that are not happening now that are the normal part of the process are when a pardon petition is received and it's reviewed is, first of all, to seek input from all parties that were involved. So the prosecutors get to weigh in, the judge who imposed sentence gets to weigh in, and that petition is reviewed. And there has to be – first of all, I think it requires something like five years post-conviction, and it also requires – an acknowledgment of guilt by the person who's seeking the pardon. You can't go to the pardon attorney. There's an office called the pardon attorney in the Justice Department. You can't go there and say, may I please have a pardon? By the way, I'm innocent I didn't do anything. So it being acceptance of responsibility and, and that contrition that we see missing here is part of the normal pardon process.
0: What about commuting?
1: So commutation, commutation. petitions are also reviewed in that way but um, are usually – reserved in normal times for more hardship cases, reasons why, again, somebody who has been – why staying in prison for an unnecessarily unduly long time should be relieved of that burden for unusual circumstances. But,
2: but, Randall, isn't this a case where he's already gone through that process and it was denied many times, but the president – isn't the president above that process? Doesn't the president just have the power to say – I'm going to let this person out. I'm going to end his Interestingly, sentence. Interestingly,
1: Ray, I, I noted last night when I watched the prior show that uh, Mrs. Blagojevich appeared on, she said to Bruce that they were going to begin the pardon petition process and go through that process. It's clear that they never did. It's very clear from the President's statements on Air Force One this week that he really has no knowledge of the facts of the case. It's very clear well, he's right, not what asked I'm, anybody to tell what I'm him saying about that, it other than the Blagojevich family.
2: But I, I, What I'm saying is, isn't that Process really irrelevant to the president's decision to say, you know what, I didn't like this case. Well, I think it's wrong. I'm going to commute well, it. sentence irrelevant in the that. sense
1: that he can do that. But most, to my knowledge, most presidents, and I know there are some exceptions, and you can bring up Mark Rich and other people, but most presidents have adhered to that process and they, they treat it with respect. And this president does not. I, I, that process well, yields
3: well, recommendations.
1: He hasn't,
4: he hasn't of pardoned of anyone else yet, though, right?
1: Well, he pardoned Ohio. And he pardoned Johnson and and D'Souza, those three.
4: But we don't know what he's going to do in terms of what may come through the routine process either,
1: right? We have no idea.
0: One thing that that I would hope is that uh, what we're talking about now is we're talking about famous people. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're talking about famous people with with, with cheerleaders who are out there, whether it's Patty Boglovich or or the the family of Jack Johnson that, that waited years for it, that went through five or six presidents, including Barack Obama, who did nothing on it. Uh, but the case that, that you made earlier, or the point that you were making earlier is that maybe he's doing this with the Jack Johnson pardon is that he trying to, he's trying to ingratiate himself with with African-American voters it would seem to me that a a a powerful demonstration of that if indeed it is and that some would say that's cynical but there are literally thousands of people who are African-American who were in prisons today many of them Many of them probably should have their cases reviewed. They're not all innocent. They don't deserve maybe to be pardoned. They don't deserve to be, have their, uh, their, their uh, sentences, uh, you know, uh, computer, com, uh, uh, commutation in any way. But I think the day the president starts pardoning people that nobody knows, yes. with no celebrities behind them, I think that's when people can say that he's, he's really taking his responsibility seriously, even though there will be those that would say he's doing it for a cynical political reason. I don't think – But, you know, Bruce, so far we're only dealing with famous people. I, don't, I wouldn't
4: characterize it as cynical. The president's pardon power is something he can use to send a message about what his concerns are. And you could say it's cynical if you're politically opposed to him, but I don't think it's necessarily
3: cynical. And I I would just point out that President Obama did, you know, to an extent what you just described and set up a designated project to commute the sentences of a lot of folks who are just no, no, you know, sorry, nobodies by comparison to these famous A lot of drug dealers. But there were a a number of thousand people who had their sentences reduced uh, properly that, you know, they don't have, there was no no message being sent, no, you know, political corruption, gamesmanship, nothing like that. It was just, you know, the interest of doing justice.
1: And that brings me back to Kwame Kilpatrick. If he thinks that Bogoyevich's sentence was just too long for ordinary politics, then where is anybody advocating for relief for somebody sentenced to twice as long for similar public corruption offenses? He probably
0: literally has never heard of him. Maybe maybe that will come because Michigan is such a pivotal state to his reelection.
1: I don't um, know that let's I don't be know cynical
0: that, here, Randall. I mean, you but, may have just given the president a really good case per, to perhaps.
1: Look at. Again, but, but I don't not, know that Kilpatrick is any more popular in Michigan or yeah, that he benefits yeah, from that
4: Yes yeah, and again, it's not necessarily cynical if what that he got was unbalanced and it also has the benefit of sending a message to a block of voters. Trump president, any president can do that if that's going speaking,
0: to be speaking of sending messages. I want, to, I want to switch gears and we'll talk about a, a pop culture thing for a moment because I know people will have a reaction to this. And, and that is uh, the case of Roseanne Barr and the case of Samantha Bee. Uh, what they said, what they did, how they were treated. Uh, Ray Hannity, I know this is you've got to be in your bonnet about uh, this double standard that you see very clearly.
2: Yeah, I listen, first of all, I love the Roseanne Show. I'll be honest with you. I'm not going to say I did, did not. I did. I was happy to see the revival, and it becomes one of the top programs in the country, right out of the gate, the first show. Um, and then all of a sudden the media starts reminding us that, oh, but look at all the stuff Roseanne Barr has said in favor of Donald Trump. <clears throat> and suddenly it becomes an issue of, is this a show that's pro-Trump or not pro-Trump? And she goes and says something really stupid that has nothing to do with the show, and without even really missing a beat, they cancel it. It just seems like it's more about politics. It's not about the issue of the anti-Semitism, the racism on her part. And even CNN went to the great lengths of saying not only was she racist, but she was anti-Semitic. And I'm thinking, wow, she's Jewish. And she's anti-Semitic. How do you explain that? I'm enraged because I think the media is missing. They're playing politics. They're not doing their own due diligence. They should look at this story. And I think if they looked at it in the context of had this happened 10 years ago, this would have been a whole different story. They would be on her side. They would be defending her free speech, saying it's ugly. But that... Type of action shouldn't happen so fast, uh,
0: Peter. You're with the ACLU, not officially here tonight, but you're you active with the ACLU. Uh, where do you come down on the way in which uh, each case was handled uh, this in the last ten days?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I could speak generally as an attorney and a law professor, and I could say that from the, my perspective, um, this isn't a double standard; it's really a false equivalency. Um, Roseanne is an employee of a private was an employee of a private company, then they have the discretion to terminate that employee for whatever reason they want. I mean, she can say whatever she wants. She has, uh, obviously, a very, very, um, you know, virtually unrestricted right to express her views um, on Twitter or any other way. But just as all of us have, you know, we work places. If we say things that violate the policy of our workplaces, you know, they could take action um, in response to that. And I think what Roseanne said, it was, you know, plain and simple, a a racist statement um, to a very—
0: Do you then then believe that Turner Broadcasting System— uh, approves of what Samantha B said, and they have no such policy, and they're just they're they're a they're a a, a, a lower rate uh, broadcast operation because I'm of a policy that allows. And, and I think I think to me a a difference is you had one person uh, who was a star. She uses that stardom to to send a tweet which was a horrible tweet to say. I, I'm not saying anything positive about that tweet. You are right. They have the ability to do what they did. But then with Samantha B. she wrote it. It was on a teleprompter. It was recorded. And that show aired about four hours later. Mm-hmm. Somewhere in that process, no one at TBS, whether it's Samantha B. and there's probably five or six major uh, management types between the moment she said those words and the time that thing aired, somebody should lose their job over it. Whether it's Samantha B, somebody should lose their job over what was said on TBS.
3: So, I mean, I think what Samantha B said, which is obviously a very explicit profanity um, directed towards women, and, and there are many such profanities towards women and towards men, um, the one thing I'll note really is she's said that word about people dozens of times in the past, dozens of times, pe- people more prominent than the president's daughter, I would say. And nothing. There's been no issue. I mean, this is sort of. I mean, she the show could be vulgar, and she's been openly vulgar in the past, using that same term and synonyms for that term, time and again. And there was what no. What does that outtry. tell you about
0: TBS? Pardon me. What does that tell you about TBS? I mean, I, I think that's if, the, if if that's a if that's a common use of of the term and the word on TBS, what does it say about their management?
3: I mean, it, what it says to me, really, it's not. I don't take a message away about their management. I mean, you hear all sorts of profanities on cable you know, TV shows and, and late-night shows. The, the more important message that I take away is that, you know, TBS um, uh, has this program. It's wildly successful. It's got a lot of advertisers behind it. Um, so something's working. Fewer, but I think the, fewer now. By two. Um, at least she has her show. Listen, right?
2: I don't like the idea that racism is somehow worse than gender Uh, discrimination. I I think they're both the same. I I agree what she said was horrible. Mm. I think what Roseanne said. But she apologized. And and I think that she tried to be, you know, to show contrition. And I'm not defending what she said, but it seems like she's a conservative who supports Trump. And you know what the worst part of this is? I hate to be the guy that has to defend Trump, and I don't defend the guy. I hate the system. I well, think I mean, it's biased. If we're
3: talking about the, the increasing coarseness of our culture, I mean, we need not look beyond the president himself. I mean, this is a person who said you know should fire the son of a we can, a and we can we go
2: back could. to we Bill can Clinton, go back Clinton too Clinton we can go back That's to true. George we're going to pause we're going to hear from
0: our other two guests and maybe from you at 1-800-723-80 I'm Bruce Dumont thanks for joining us live from Chicago it's Saturday Night Live the experience Tuesday through Sundays and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv. Come on back in Chicago. And uh, Randall Sanborn, we haven't heard from you. Or Michael, I want to get your reaction on the... The big Samantha B. Well, uh, uh, I,
1: I think the vulgarity is regrettable on all fronts and even deplorable, I would say. And I can't defend it. But I think what's important is we are beginning to see a sea change of, of less tolerance. If you look even at the White House correspondence dinner recently, I think there is a, a realization coming that the idea of having comedians throwing around insults in Washington is not working any longer and should be reevaluated. Um, I also think that from the immediate action we've seen from abc what we've seen recently from starbucks what we see from other major corporations that are finding themselves in the crosshairs is almost an immediate swift reaction to end this type of um, tolerance for the vulgarity and to move on from it i I can't explain what samantha b's network is thinking and i think that they are vulnerable to consequences by do you
0: agree that somebody should lose their job over that Somewhere I, in that chain somewhere I in think, that chain somebody 's th- not thinking
1: I, I, I think it 's impossible to defend, and I think it 's getting harder and harder to see the separation of how they don 't take action, but ABC swiftly acts as Roseanne.
2: Bruce, do you also think that maybe there is one little difference that uh, uh, Roseanne said what she said outside of the context of entertainment in her private life yeah. and made it worse and uh, Samantha B in all fairness, although i don 't agree with this. Um, set it in the context of her performance, right? right. And does that make a difference? Oh. So people might use that to to uh, defend Samantha B. Um, and say that you know in her case that wasn't her personal view. She was just trying to upset the audience and shock the system with outrageous rhetoric. Yeah, Ro- Rose
4: Roseanne, her tweet was so off the wall, and I think it just raises the question of any time you try to say musicians, actors are going to be people you're going to point to and say, this person supports me. You don't know what they're going to do next. They're often high-strung people. They have strange ideas. Think about Michael Jackson and some of the people who've been famous. Kanye West, who knows what he'll come up with next? People are saying, isn't it great he supports Trump? Who knows what he'll do next? You know, the, the, the politicians in public policy are one thing, and this kind of showbiz stuff, and the people who do these things we shouldn 't put too much weight on it.
0: well, one of the things that is unfortunate, I would think uh, from your perspective, Peter, is that uh, the point that samantha b was was trying to make was that uh, she had she was hoping that Ivanka Trump would use her influence to change her father 's policy uh, as it relates to cracking down on illegal immigration, which at the moment is separating uh, families, uh, breaking up families. Uh, isn't that the big loss here, is that maybe she, maybe she had a legitimate issue to discuss, and mm-hmm. she had a platform to do it, and frankly, she blew it?
3: You know, I think, I think one of the regrettable things is, yeah, this is the little story that has subsumed the greater story, and I think that's something that's happened again and again. Uh, you know, It's last- like the
0: knee in the F- NFL. Yes. That's become a bigger story than the reasons why they're taking it.
3: Exactly. And I think, you know, as a result of, of you know, the blow up over the use of a, obviously a profane term, um, you know, we've lost sight of what she was actually advocating for and what she was actually, the point she was actually making, which is a really important one, and one that, as you pointed out, is, is splitting families apart at the border and all over the country.
0: If people are coming to this country and uh, they know in advance, we assume that many of them know in advance because the Attorney General has announced it that if they come, they are subject to arrest, and a parent or parents continue to bring their children and attempt to get them in the United States, Um, is there some parental responsibility if those children are taken away from them?
3: Yeah, I mean, even before this, uh, I think, draconian DOJ... um uh measure there was always some risk when people try to enter the country illegally with their children but i think if you look at the cases where people try to do that um it's because they're fleeing from something more dangerous i mean i could speak for myself my family and i wasn't born in this country and my family moved to this country and i was too legally through the you know appropriate channels where were you born i was actually born in egypt um and i could tell you that my family saw a future for the whole family that just was not going to give us um, anything resembling a healthy free life And, of course, we went through all the processes that we needed to to come in legally and become citizens and all that. Um, But a lot of families don't have that luxury. A lot of families are literally just at the border trying to flee from something that could end them much more quickly and much more rapidly and, you know, come to this country to seek asylum, to, to get a foothold, to do anything to get away from, you know, the greater harm. So I think there is always parental responsibility, but at some point it becomes really punitive and draconian, and it creates an even worse problem because now more kids are in more places without their parents and actually, you know, they will end up in worse situations than if we just kept the family together.
0: Michael, your reaction to this crackdown? You've not been on the show for the last couple of months, so... You know, it's
4: it's, it's sad that, that this is occurring. Um, you know, the world's... This, many billions of people in the world who live in dangerous countries, places that you wouldn't prefer to live in. We have, what, 5% of the people in the world in the USA. Lots of people like to come here. Um, you want to do what you can for them, but the... the current regime, the current administration has made it clear we're going to be tougher than we've been in the past, and uh, it would behoove people to think very hard about trying to come into the country illegally in a way they might not have five or ten years ago. The the public tolerance, the voting public in America just doesn't have it. And any time, every policy, no matter what it is, is going to have winners and losers. And if you're going to crack down on something like this, there are always going to be heartstring cases. A person commits an ordinary crime in America who's a U.S. citizen, their kids are going to suffer. It's what happens, and it's tragic, but people should think very hard before they try to come into the country unlawfully.
0: You spent 20 years in the Justice Department, Randall. Uh, if an attorney general said, you know, gives a directive to the U.S. attorneys, uh, I would assume that in, in some cases the receiving U.S. attorney may not be totally supportive of that directive. Do they have the ability to sort of slow walk things, or are they, or, or are they, are, are they watched
1: I think uh you do you have to follow the directives that come from the Justice Department in Washington if you want to maintain your position in the government and be part of the the government 's team you know the the u s attorney is the only political appointee in the uh div- field division offices of the Justice Department, so you have a lot of career prosecutors, but if you 're dealing with a political appointee, we saw an 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 example during the George W. Bush administration when there was an attempt to purge United States attorneys who were not viewed as being in concert with the goals and ambitions of the Justice Department and the administration. And it, that was a, a very regrettable circumstance because we want independence in the field, but at the same time, uh, there is this pressure that you can be in jeopardy if you don't a, follow A the quick request.
0: question mm-hmm. how long can you get away with slow walking it before the word gets back to the to, to, to it the depends Justice how
1: department. hot button an issue it might be and it could be pretty quick i would
3: guess about three to four years three to four days three four years, years. three to four years i think years. it depends oh. <laughs> that's a long time I think it depends
0: uh we're talking we've got great guests this evening thanks very much for joining us we, we haven't even talked about north korea we will coming up
5: this spring goodman theater presents sure. having our say The incredible true story of the Delaney sisters, the trailblazers, activists, and best friends who lived past 100. From the Jim Crow South to the Harlem Renaissance, their historic journey is an inspiring story of triumphing over prejudice in times of social unrest. Having Our Say, directed by Chuck Smith at Goodman Theater, May 5th through June 10th. Tickets at goodmantheater.org.
0: Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live, The Experience. Tuesday through Sundays and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv. Are you planning for the day when you can retire to your dream home in Palm Springs, California? A day surrounded by spectacular scenery, golf courses, a rich cultural life, and great dining? If you are, you'll need a guide, someone who knows where to look, an experienced broker, someone who knows the desert communities of Southern California and all they have to offer. That person is Brian Beard, who's been making dreams come true for over 13 years, selling over $100 million in real estate, including celebrity and architecturally significant homes to the rich and famous, and more importantly, to people just like you. Brian's company, Caldwell Banker, has agents worldwide, but Brian Beard is your man in Palm Springs. Call Brian now at 760 760- Seven nine nine seven zero nine six. That's 760 799 7096. Or visit him online at Brian com. Bruce Dumont back. We continue on Beyond the Beltway, wherever you're listening from coast to coast and border to border on FOTUS Channel 124 and Sirius XM Satellite Radio. Nice to have you with us this evening. Uh, the last time you were on our show, Peter, uh, your area of expertise is uh, litigation and also cyber uh, cyber matters. Uh, we were talking about uh, the cyber challenges of the United States. And uh, I wonder if there's any update, especially as it relates to securing the integrity of the ballot. Is the government responding in any significant way uh, to make sure that our voting this November is on the up and up?
3: It's a great question. I think what we're seeing is really there's two parts of the the equation. First, you have, you know, outside actors, you know, and Facebook and Google and and social media sites that try to influence people's voting. And then the other side, you have sort of the cybersecurity infrastructure of voting. And what we've seen is there's been action on on both sides, really. Obviously, everyone has seen uh, Mark Zuckerberg testify um, about Cambridge Analytica and efforts Facebook's undertaking to improve Its security, but on the uh, ballot side, we have a number of states have taken action and are taking action to ensure that the integrity of their voting systems are intact. So, just in terms of a quick rundown, I know we have a a, a listener or watcher in West Virginia. Uh, There was an article recently in the Times about um, how West Virginia is putting into place number of protections where um, when people register online to vote, um, it's ferreting out any IP addresses that are outside of the state or outside of the country and affirmatively blocking them. That's one of several measures. Um, In Michigan, just a couple of days ago, uh, the Secretary of State there um, announced that they just received millions of dollars of new sort of um, hard, hard coded cybersecurity uh, ballot machines and other software. And I know New York is actually running a battery of, you know, um, uh, attacks, simulated cyber attacks that law enforcement uh, officers in New York, uh, including, you know, the police, the uh, state's attorneys there, which are just the attorney attorney general office um, are all going to be participating in it. So I think Really, it's going to come down to each state to take the steps they need because the states administer their own, you know, voting systems um, to make sure that the integrity of the vote is intact. Is
0: there any? I, I know when uh, when the story broke uh, almost a year and a half ago, there were some, incl- including as a discussion on this program at one point, that that maybe we go, maybe we take an election and we go back to paper ballots. Has that picked up any currency uh, in any jurisdiction that you're aware of?
3: Uh, to my knowledge, not not to the point where they've actually made the change, but it remains, um, you know, a continual point of discussion, and it's something that, um, you know, I think we can all agree in some cases that it may be the appropriate step because there's a lot on the line. Um, and if you have a system that's not secure, um, that's networked and available, you know, to hackers to access, you know, you, you begin to question the integrity of the vote and the results of the vote. So um, it hasn't, to my knowledge, been moved to paper anywhere, but you know, I wouldn't be surprised if in some places where they lacked cybersecurity that they needed, they went that route.
0: Last week on this program, when, when we were discussing uh, uh, cybersecurity and, and also whether or not the Obama administration uh, made the correct call when they decided not to inform the American people about Uh, attempts by the Russians to engage in the 2016 election. The intelligence communities had provided them with some evidence. There was a a meeting with congressional leaders, and uh, Mitch McConnell said uh, he would not join in a bipartisan alert to the American people. And uh, my argument at the time was, well, he's president was the leader of the free world, Uh, he could have gone beyond that, uh, you know, that objection and just done what I thought would have been the right thing is to inform the American people, realizing that some people would say, aha, you're trying to tip the scales. But again, there was important information that the American people should have had that they didn't have. And I basically said that I thought that uh, uh, the president uh, was asleep at the switch and, and missed an opportunity. Do you agree or disagree with that point?
3: You know, it's, it's it's hard to say. It's a good. It's a really good question. I think um, I think the burden was really on the elected leaders of the American people, uh, Congress, to make that announcement. And I think the president, an outgoing president in the end of his second term, um, who's already being scrutinized, um, you know, under a electron microscope for everything he does, um, was trying, you know, as much as possible not to influence, you know, improperly the outcome of the election, or not to appear to try to throw a wrench into the proceedings. So I think. It's hard to – I'm glad I wasn't in uh, President Obama's shoes, uh, but I do think that um, really the burden was on Congress and Mitch McConnell and the, you know, at the time minority leader to come together and get the word out. And failing that, it's I – don't, I don't blame Obama.
0: Michael, uh, what, do you, uh, what do you think about that? Um, Does Obama take some blame?
4: Uh, well, I'm not sure how much impact the Russians actually had. My sense from everything I've read is was fairly minor. Um, it's a judgment call on the president's part. I'm, I've berated – Obama for any number of things. I don't know that that's necessarily the, the call that he got wrong.
0: Well, this, this week, uh, when, when the president met at the White House with the, with the number two or the top intelligence guy uh, in North Korea, this is the guy who, according to published reports, was the guy that was responsible for the Sony cyber attack
6: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, that there was some U.S. retaliation to that. Do you do you know what retaliation, if any, there was to the Sony attack? Because the, I think the perception of the American people, including myself, is that Obama didn't do anything to fight back. I mean he was he literally he he failed as a commander in chief in the cyber war.
3: Mm-hmm. I mean I think I, I I'm not in the intelligence community, but I know that a lot of um, the intelligence community's resources are directed towards Cyber warfare. Um, I think that with time we'll learn what happened, but I, I have faith in the CIA, the NSA, and the related, the entire IC, the intelligence community at large, that there were some actions taken. We just don't know them. And we shouldn't. At you know, least problem, for a while.
4: right? That's tough for the president right. because. You know, any president, it doesn't matter which party. You know, you have all kinds of things you might be doing militarily or particularly cyber, things that, re- that are technical that can be blocked by your opponents, and you don't get to say when you've retaliated. They, the people who matter know, your opponents know, but you don't want to disclose that you've done it.
0: How agra- without revealing any secrets, uh, Randall, you spent 20 years at the Justice Department uh, insofar as uh, their uh, awareness uh, – Where where do cyber attacks fit on their uh, agenda of things to look for?
1: uh, Under U.S. Attorney Zach Farden, the cyber uh, uh, investigative resources of the office were really ramped up. Um, it, It took a while, Bruce, for the law enforcement agencies, the FBI and others, to catch up to where the bad guys were. And I think they did a really good job of that. And then you had to have the prosecution resources to go along with that. There is now a cyber crime division of the U.S attorney's office, and they are being very aggressive in working with uh, corporations who have trade secrets that are vulnerable and prosecuting those cases where uh, they are warranted. So I think that they're putting a lot of attention there.
0: Is there any connection between fighting cyber crime and trying to reduce street violence, uh, gang violence, gun violence in Chicago? Is there any is there any surveillance that's going on? Uh, or, or or to what extent, I guess, are the gangbangers of Chicago, to what extent are they engaging in some sort of cyber communication that could be intercepted uh, by the government? Well, Is that part of the... You know, we understand that the, the president sent, what, 20 new mm-hmm. uh, ATF people no. to Chicago. Uh, are they having an impact?
1: Well, the uses of high technology have exploded. And we also know that there is video surveillance virtually of every city block. And so that's done by the Chicago Police Department with the blue light cameras that you have on right. the light poles. So there is a lot of high technology being used in law enforcement.
0: Okay. We come back. We're going to continue our conversation. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight. And a little bit later Later on, we're going to be talking about California politics and their big primary coming up next Tuesday.
5: This spring, Goodman Theater presents Having Our Say, the incredible true story of the Delaney sisters, the trailblazers, activists, and best friends who lived past 100, from the Jim Crow South to the Harlem Renaissance. Their historic journey is an inspiring story of triumphing over prejudice in times of social unrest. Having Our Say, directed by Chuck Smith at Goodman Theatre, May 5th through June 10th. Tickets at GoodmanTheatre.org. First, we went back in Chicago. Uh, let's let our guests introduce themselves,
0: and we'll start this evening with a uh, someone on his maiden voyage, Randall Sanborn.
1: I'm a non-traditional lawyer with a communications consulting practice. I'm a former newspaper reporter and a longtime government spokesman for the U.S. Attorney's Office.
0: In the Northern District of Illinois, Ray Hanania joins us.
2: I've uh, covered City Hall for 20 years, and for the last 45 years I've been doing communications, journalism. I still write some columns for a number of newspapers, and I handle 12 to 14 different clients. Uh, Aren't you clients. in the Journalism Hall of Fame? No. No, should I'm be. too outspoken and I scream you be. and yell. You um, be. I'm never going to make it. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm the Roseanne Barr of, of Chicago <laughs> politics, not the Samantha B. <clears throat>
3: All right, Peter Hanna. Um, I'm also a non traditional attorney. Um, I focus my, my practice on privacy, intellectual property, constitutional law, civil rights. Um, I teach privacy and security law at Chicago Kent School of Law, and I uh, also work with the uh, ACLU of Illinois on a number of issues. And Mr. Michael
4: Lotus. I suppose I'm a traditional attorney, <laughs> commercial litigation, and uh, we do some plaintiff side work been doing that for 25 years now, Um, wrote a book in 2013 called America 3.0, Why America's Greatest Days Are Yet to Come. And uh, I was uh, one of the few people willing to publicly say he voted for Mr. Trump, and hence I've been invited on this show Mm. from time to time.
0: Yeah, there's not too many in Illinois that are easily, uh, all of our Republicans are people that said they did not vote for Donald Trump. Anyway, nice to have you all with us this evening. Uh, I want to talk about, again, one of the big stories of this week. Actually, it's going to dominate pretty much the news over the next couple of days until June. June 12th uh when the the singapore summit is going to take place and i want to get reaction to um, uh how the president is is handling this thus far and and this uh, meeting that uh, took place earlier in the week uh when the number two guy from north korea came to town talked to mike pompey pom- and pompey- and was going to spend like i guess a short time mm-hmm. delivering a letter to the president turned out to be over two an hour hour two two hours
4: yeah um- it's, I think when the history is written of this, we'll see that much more was going on behind the scenes than we're privy to, obviously. The uh, pressure being put on North Korea is more or less invisible to the news, and they're being pushed to, to make some kind of deal. I think the Chinese have to be weighing in on North Korea very hard. They don't want to see a disaster occur on their frontier. So Trump has, I think, positioned it pretty well, hopefully, to get a reasonable deal from North Korea.
0: Peter, are you surprised and are you cheering for the president to be successful here?
3: I'm, I mean, I'm cheering for uh, an outcome that's best for the North Korean people and obviously for the American people first and foremost. Um, the one thing that I think um, alarms me is I, I think President Trump is not a particularly sophisticated diplomatic actor. That being said, you don't always need a sophisticated diplomatic actor to get a good result. But the you know, the language in diplomatic circles and what we as a country have been looking for from North Korea is a CVID, complete, verifiable, irreversible denuclearization as pretty much a prerequisite to any sort of aid or any sort of benefit to North Korea. And I feel like, you know, that's what President Trump came out asking for originally, denuclearization as a, as a prerequisite to anything. But as we've seen over the past few days, the summit was off, now it's on again. The definition of denuclearization is not, I don't think, the same in North Korea's mind and in America's mind. And I, I have set pretty low hopes for, for this June 12th summit. Yeah.
0: Well, a couple of weeks ago when we had Carl Friedhoff, who's our, he's our North Korean expert who appears on this program, I mean, he said emphatically, he said, you know, the, the, the difference in, in, uh, in definition is just night and day. I mean, denuclearization to the North Koreans is not taking away all of their nukes. It ain't going to happen. So, Ray Hanania, remember- you're a Trump supporter, but uh, are you uh, enthusiastic, and are you worried that we're sending someone that maybe isn't a seasoned Diplomat over to meet with someone else who isn't a, a seasoned diplomat. Well,
2: I was only a Trump supporter because I wanted him to shake up the game board, kick it, and start it over. He has done um, that. But I remember being on this very <laughs> program eight months ago where we were seriously talking about the possibility that there would be a nuclear war with North Korea, that North Korea might attack this country. Everybody seemed to fear the possibility that, that would happen. Um, so today, the very fact that I recall uh, the unprecedented act of seeing the uh, uh, president of North Korea and the president of South Korea coming over and shaking hands and, you know, uh, crossing the line. That's unbelievable. And and to me, nobody would ever believe that was possible. So that's a good thing, however this ends up.
3: Can I ask you, do you attribute the, you know, the sort of, warming of, of relations between North Korea and South Korea. Do you attribute that to President Trump's actions?
2: Absolutely. I think with, I think that, um, again, I don't think he's, he's uh, an expert at diplomacy. I, I think you pointed that out, and I think most people recognize it. But he's going to do something that sometimes you need to do, that a smart person who's uh, politically driven would say, ah, I'm not going to take that chance. Right. I think and, he just does it thing, without thinking no, about no, it. No, so it I, think he, th-
4: I think he thinks about it. I think what happened, for example— by being the, the bad cop and being the guy who's got John Bolton in there and saying, you know, well, we're you know, doing military preparation to attack you, he gives the South Korean president cover. And the South Korean president can call him up and say, look, these guys, you know, we better talk. So, I don't know, we, we don't know all of the machinations.
1: I, I, I welcome It'll. diplomacy over fire and fury, but I'd be concerned about the strategy, because how can you ask for the Chinese to help with North Korea when we're then starting a trade war, on the other hand? So I, I wonder if there really is a coordinated strategy at work.
2: Well, they I, may oh, be tied together.
4: Well, I think they are. I think you tell the Chinese, yep. we you know, what do you want to do to mm-hmm. turn the heat yeah. down here? Yeah. Well, help I, us with I, Korea. Think I
0: think it's part of it is is, is to is to you know start that trade war now and just say, hey you know you're, we're gonna we're gonna handle you on the back end I mean it's part of how trump works it's it's three steps forward, two steps back and and the key thing is as as Peter said, uh, no one expected this guy to be able to do what he's done only. The people that voted for him, they all expected it, and they're demanding it, and I think they're happier than Clams right now because he's delivering on virtually all of the promises he's made. It doesn't we, have his wall yet, but a uh, lot of other
4: stuff. In regards to North died. Korea, you know, all the other more measured types of things have got a stasis, and stasis has just been them abil- them having the ability to develop the weapons. And Trump is taking a very unorthodox approach. I hope it works, but what we've been doing before was not working.
0: Peter, when you're out on the social circuit... Uh, with your friends and family, exceedingly rare. But <laughs> uh, you, I assume that you are surrounded by people, very few of whom voted for Donald Trump. This is no, I, I meant I meant you, Randall. Okay. You both can respond, but right. I'm, I'm most. You knew i was never out in the social this. I'm
1: likewise exceedingly I'm, rarely I'm, out. I'm
0: <laughs> most interested in your response. Okay, so you're all together. You're probably wringing your hands over much of what the president has said or done. And my question is, when something like North Korea comes up, does anybody in that circle swallow hard and say, maybe we underestimated this guy? Does, that, does the, Is there any semblance of appreciation that you may have underestimated his abilities. and well, When I say you, I mean this collective group.
1: I, I understand why. Well, and as I said, I, I certainly welcome diplomacy over fire and fury. So that's a relief. Is he ready? For do the, you
0: wonder? Do, do people in that group understand, however, that the fire and fury rhetoric is, is what
1: led yeah, to, to where we are now? Well, I, I'm not ready to give him the Nobel Peace Prize just yet because I'm concerned that there is just too much chaos driving his impulses and his reactions. Are we on? Are we off? What's going to happen when he gets there? Is he going to stay the course and actually come to some agreement? So I think we have a long way to go, but it, I'm much more hopeful that it can be productive than the alternatives.
0: Ray?
2: I, you know what, um, I th- being a baby boomer, I look at North Korea and all the other wars we've had, and and North Korea scares the heck out of me more than any war, more than Vietnam, more than Iraq. Um, it, the Nazis were probably worse, but we beat them. But that's an unfinished battle that's been going on since the 50s, and I just don't. The fact that maybe we're finally doing something with it could be a relief that's good for the future, and a, and I give him credit with. Is
0: that a goal of the first? I think the goal of the. It was, it was like uh, Reagan and Gorbachev. The goal of the first meeting is to have a second meeting. So I'm but, saying uh, coming, out of the, coming out of the first meeting, I don't think anybody is expecting us to come out and say, okay, we're getting rid of all nukes. I, I, I don't think we're going to come out, and I don't think the president's going to say we're taking all troops out of South Korea. I don't think that's going to happen. I, but no. could, could the victory here, could the win-win-win for everybody here be that they come back? and the peace treaty is signed between the North and the South, and the Korean War is over.
2: Whatever Trump does, he's never going to be treated fairly in today's environment, and I think some of the Even criticism- if he did that? Yes. Would I- you
0: agree with that, Peter? I think he- I mean, how, how big a deal to you is that the Korean War is over?
3: Well, I mean, it's funny that you make that point, because the, the Korean War has never officially been added. Right. Uh he's- And, you know, I think— President Trump going over there to meet with the head of state with which we're technically still at war is a very strange thing, but we live in very strange times. I think President Trump has to do... Uh, show a real move of the needle in making the world better and making things better for Americans and for people before he begins to get credit. And I think that
1: would be worthy of the Nobel Peace Prize nomination at least.
4: Yeah, well, one of the things that's interesting is in that letter where he canceled the mini, he talked, and he said it in tweets to us, you're missing out on the chance for peace and prosperity. And you look at the rest of East Asia. South Korea was an authoritarian country that got rich and became democratic. Same with Taiwan. China's becoming wealthy. They're not democratic. But here's this laggard in North Korea. There's really no excuse. And I think that the message from, I hope, from the Chinese and from the president is like, just get with the program. No one's doing this 1940s era Stalinism anymore.
0: It doesn't work. That letter was criticized, but I think the way it was written and certainly the way it was received because there were conciliatory words that came back literally within 24 hours from the North Koreans. Right. So they they, they, they like the letter. Well, they the were, one thing yeah. about this letter is that <clears throat> the famous letter of this week when the huge envelope is the guy travels halfway across the world. He's the number two guy. He hands the president the letter. It was, it was checked for poison, which I understand. But then the president said it was a very nice letter. He <laughs> said that twice in, a, in his impromptu press conference. But then he acknowledged that he never read what was in the letter. I mean... Trump
2: may get the Nobel Peace Prize, but he won't win CNN support. Okay? What, what, That's but, what you it know, comes down. open
0: the letter. I mean, I want to know what's in the letter. You know, that. maybe, you know, the president's birthday is the 14th of June. Maybe there's going to be a surprise birthday party for him at the DMZ. We're going to pause when we come back. We're going to talk about California politics and what's coming up Tuesday. Are you planning for the day when you can retire to your dream home in Palm Springs, California? A day surrounded by spectacular scenery, golf courses, a rich cultural life, and great dining? If you are, you'll need a guide, someone who knows where to look, an experienced broker, someone who knows the desert communities of Southern California and all they have to offer. That person is Brian Beard, who's been making dreams come true for over thirteen years, selling over a hundred million dollars in real estate, including celebrity and architecturally significant homes to the rich and famous, and more importantly to people just like you. Brian's company Caldwell Banker has agents worldwide, but Brian Beard is your man in Palm Springs. Call Brian now at seven six o. 799-7096. That's 760-799-7096. Or visit him online at com. Bruce Dumont back in Chicago. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, in the next couple of segments, we're going to be talking about politics, specifically what's happening in the state of California. Uh, it's one of three states that has big primaries coming up uh, this coming Tuesday on June 5th, which, by the way, is the 50th anniversary of the California primary that Robert Kennedy won and that's when he was assassinated that night and he died uh, on the 6th but That assassination anniversary coming up on Tuesday, the California Democrats and Republicans will go to the polls again on Tuesday. And, uh, uh, you know, when when you look at, uh, you've read so much about whether there's going to be a blue wave and whether or not the Democrats can take control of Congress, well, a lot is going to have to do with what happens in the state of California. There are 53 members of Congress from the state of California. Fourteen of them are Republicans, and of those fourteen, nine of them are in competitive races, and there's only five safe Republican seats in the state of California. Earlier in the year, as you may recall, when we had Mark Gonzalez, the head of the Los Angeles County Democratic Party, he was predicting in January of this year that the Democrats were going to win all nine of them. There was going to be a, a complete blowout. There would be no Republican members of Congress. Things have changed quite a bit. And so talking about that, we're going to be joined by Patrick Reddy, who joins us from Santa Monica. Pat, nice to have you with us on Beyond the Beltway.
6: Great to be here, Bruce.
0: Before we get into some of the congressional races, I do want to talk about, obviously, the, the, the big race out there that uh, may have interest to in people around the country is the race for governor. Jerry Brown, the Democrat, uh, cannot run for re-election. Uh, and, and you have a primary, but it's a unique primary in that it's the top two vote-getters. And the top two vote-getters, if they're from the same party, that's okay under California law.
6: Yes. In fact, in 2016, we had a runoff for the U.S. Senate between uh, Kamala Harris and Linda Sanchez, uh, two Democrats. So the Republican turnout was very low in that race, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest factor in this race has been the total apathy about it. No one I know is talking about who's going to win. And really? There's just very little interest.
0: Now, insofar so far as the race for governor, uh the lieutenant governor Gavin Newsom, who's been with Jerry Brown uh for 8 years, at this moment he's running uh, considerably ahead in the polls. He is a Democrat. And uh there's about 7 or 8 other candidates that are running and and the battle is for the second place and it's uh, it's between a Republican, uh, John Cox, and the mayor of Los Angeles, uh Mayor of Villa Villa Ragosa. Tell us a little bit about where that race is at the moment. Who's who's likely to finish in second place?
6: Well, uh, right now the fear among Villarreal's people, and I'm supporting him. I've done a little volunteer for work for him. Is that in a low turnout election, Republicans are only about a quarter of the registered voters. But in a low turnout, low interest primary like this, they could be thirty five percent of the actual vote. And if they were the older Republican voters were to go in and just be John Cox Republican and mark that ballot, he's probably going to make the runoff. And um, Antonio would get squeezed out. Now, the one new development in the last two weeks is he's running ads geared almost exclusively to the Latino community. I mean, he literally shows Trump's ICE department ripping children out of their parents' hands and shipping them overseas. Very emotional ad. Uh, his one hope is to drive up a really high Latino turnout. And in 2016, they were 31% of all voters. So if that were to repeat itself, he, Antonio would probably make the runoff.
0: But again, in the last race uh, when uh, against Camilla Harris, uh, running against uh, Linda Sanchez, uh, the Hispanic vote was not enough to push, uh, uh, you know, uh, Sanchez to a victory. So uh, Villa LaGrosa's only chance is to have a huge turnout.
6: Yeah, he's got to make the runoff, and then he's got an interesting strategy. He's going to, in the fall, try and pose as the moderate against the radical Newsom from San Francisco. Is he, he a radical? Re- no, no. They're virtually identical positions, <laughs> but you know how it is in a campaign, you just say whatever you need to do to win.
0: Right. Now, John Cox, uh, f- many people in Illinois may remember that name because he originally was from Illinois. He ran for political office on several occasions. He ran against Barack Obama. Uh, he ran for recorder of deeds. He ran for Congress against John Edward Porter. He uh, even ran for president uh, in the uh, uh, primaries a few years ago. So he's sort of a political gadfly. How did he make it to the number one spot for Republicans in California in, a, in less than 10
6: years? Well, the biggest thing is he got the Trump endorsement, and Trump only got about a third of the vote in the general election, but in a primary, that's enough to get you into a runoff. So he's consolidated the Trump vote. He's running ads against illegal immigration. He's for building the wall. He's echoing Trump. Uh, by the way, I made a error before. I made a reference to Linda Sanchez. That's the sister who was in okay. Congress. It was Loretta Sanchez Loretta, who I'm ran sorry. for the Senate. Okay, good. My, My bad.
0: Okay. My question is this, though. Uh, if Cox makes it, does he have any chance in the fall at all?
6: Very little. Newsom is probably not as strong as Jerry Brown, who got over 60 percent. But he'll be in the mid to high 50s. It's just there's too many Democrats here.
0: Now in uh, the Dem- in the u s Senate, Diane Feinstein is running for her sixth term. She's very popular there, but she didn't get the endorsement of the California Democratic Party that that said that was maybe she was too moderate, but she isn't in any political trouble in any way, is she?
6: I would agree with that, barring a health problem or some kind of weird scandal she'll she will go on to another term and break hiram johnson 's record for the longest serving california senator
0: and she 's what eighty four years old now yes okay let's go let 's go to some of those house races as i mentioned uh, fifty three house seats in in the state of California fourteen held by republicans what are what are the uh races? that are most likely to be lost by Republicans at the moment? Who are the, who are the most vulnerable uh, re- Republican incumbent seats, even though some of the incumbents have retired?
6: I would say the 49th District down in a mixture of San Diego and Orange County. That's Darrell Issas, old seat, the old friend from the House Investigations Committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's retiring. Hillary won that district pretty handily. Um, I would say Tom McClintock in the Sacramento suburbs will probably survive. That's where the new Republican money is moving out to, east of Sacramento on Route 80. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jeff Denham is vulnerable um, in Modesto. That's Gary Condit's old seat. Mm -hmm. Um, The biggest one would probably be uh, Steve Knight in the Antelope Valley. That's new suburbia north of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. The, The... the factor that hurts the Republicans here is due to the high birth rate among um, minorities, they move from out to the suburbs pretty quick. So in five years, a suburban district can be filled up with, you know, urban Democrats, and that's what's happening in some of these places. How much uh, in
0: trouble is Devin Nunes, who's probably the most well-known, maybe next to, uh, uh, you know, Majority Leader uh, McCarthy, a uh, Republican, how is he uh, likely to do on Tuesday?
6: I expect him to win, if at all, narrowly. Uh, Kevin McCarthy is completely safe. He has the district that's headed towards the mountains. And the mountains in California tend to be very Republican. You know, a lot of going oners up there. Uh, but Nunez has a district that's changing, getting more Hispanic registration. Um The guy who's in the most trouble is actually Dana Rohrabacher, but he's probably not going to lose to a Democrat. In the 48th district, that is uh, the Glamour District, Newport Beach, Huntington Beach, San Clemente. He's probably going to lose to Scott Baugh, the former Republican assembly leader who's popular.
0: But but aren't there two or three districts where it will be Republican running against Republican, that the Democrats will be uh, on the outside?
6: Yeah, that's one where it will probably happen. There's a possibility... That could happen in the ISA district, which is the 49. That's also a possibility in the 50 district, which is uh, Duncan Hunter Jr.
0: And also uh, a, Ed, Ed, Ed Royce in the 39th district. Now, he is retired. He is one yeah. of the incumbents that, that that hung it up.
6: Yeah, Ed Royce, he has a district that's inland Orange County. It's your basic suburban, middle-class Republican yeah. voters there. Um the problem is there's three or four Democrats and only two Republicans, so that could be an all-Republican runoff, too. At, the,
0: at this moment, though, getting back to, to Trump, uh, obviously he's, he may not be popular. He's not going to win the state of California. But in this Republican primary, are more people running towards Tom, Trump or against Trump?
6: I would say more towards them, because the conservative base of the Republican Party still likes Trump. The general public may not, but the the core Republicans do.
0: One last question, because in the race for governor you referenced, uh, Cox is taking a strong position on illegal immigration. He's also taken a stance against sanctuary states. And again, those, uh, you know, back in the Midwest, we've been following the story of some counties, some large counties uh, and municipalities in California that are challenging Uh, Sacramento and Jerry Brown, and and they don't like the the leftward uh, movement of the state to be a sanctuary state. How big an issue will that be on Tuesday?
6: Among Republicans, probably going to be decisive, probably be the major issue. Among the Democrats, not so much. Um, They're more interested in jobs, schools, you know, the environment, especially.
0: And last but, but and last but not least, we're going to move on. But what's your projection for the Hispanic vote on Tuesday? Because that's going to be the key to whether or not a Republican finishes second or third, I would think.
6: I think it's going to be a below average turnout. Antonio just hasn't ignited them. The one caveat is there's still 20 percent of the vote undecided in almost all these races. So the late deciders could wow. be huge.
0: That's a lot of undecided voters. Pat Reddy, thanks very much for joining us, for bringing us up to date on what's happening in the Golden State on Tuesday night. Back shortly from Chicago. Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live, the experience. Tuesday through Sundays and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv. Chris Dumont back in Chicago. Thanks very much, Ray. Handing a question to you. When the president refers to MS-13 members as animals, a lot of people get upset, but you don't.
2: Well, I mean, why not? They're street gang members. They're a vicious gang. They're murderers. They're killers. Uh... I don't know. I, I I don't get it. This uh, the way we've changed the focus on street gang members. I I know they have rights, and you know they should be treated like everybody. But um, you're not talking about good people.
1: Ray, it's interesting, though, that you, that to me is a double standard. You're critical of the way prosecutors talked about Blagojevich when he was charged, but you don't mind subjective characterizations or derogatory comments about street gang members. Yeah, but you're, we should have a same a standard difference. for both.
2: No, but there's a difference. I don't think Blagojevich was guilty. I don't think Blagojevich committed a crime. I, I, and I see a difference between street gang members that kill people and murder people And I think that's far worse than saying that, hey, if you do me a favor, I'm going to do you a favor. So
1: this is one of the great mischaracterizations that we really didn't get to earlier, this notion that the the former governor did not commit a crime because the, the courts have applied the same law to different facts, in his case, Governor Inf- Bob McDonald's case in Virginia, and to public officials all over the country. Right. And there isn't any dispute that Blagojevich was attempting there was to trade no dispute. We official, wouldn't be talking about it. official acts for personal benefits, whether it was campaign contributions yeah. or a foundation job and a high salary for himself. These were official acts when he withheld funding for doctors' reimbursement sure. at Children's give him, Hospital. Give him but, two
2: years in prison, but, but and I would have been happy. But that's it's a would separate have said issue. It, is, it isn't to me, though. It isn't a separate issue. Can I, can it I just, is the
3: issue. Can I just, uh, Peter, very briefly, uh, we could we could still talk about it. We are, obviously. Yeah. But, you know, the, we follow the rule of law and the process of law, right? A jury of his peers convicted him, and sentencing guidelines that, you know, we all might have objections to were applied and reduced by Judge Zabel. The appeal process proceeded. The habeas process proceeded. And he is where the law dictates... He should be for what a jury decided he did, um, but just jumping to the animals, uh, statement earlier, and I think there is a, a major risk when you dehumanize people who do, as as you said, Ray, have I, rights. I, have
2: I, I don't know why I, though? But um, we're sitting here trying to make cre- uh, streaking members in California more sympathetic the, the, than a oh, former it's, governor it's, it's, who had it's, one it's, of the best insurance I don't know policies. without, it's in of without regard to, to without
4: Michael, regard to sure. The, the uh, Ms. Uh, President Trump says all kinds of things. Ms. Thirteen is a particularly vicious group of people. I know a guy who was involved in, in investigating and prosecuting these guys. They are as bad as it gets. They, they came into a, a Midwestern town. Um, there was a drug gang that had the drug trade there. They just like literally rounded these guys up and slaughtered them to take over. The, the MS-13 is – it's a little unconcerning to see the people who hate Trump so much that they almost seem to be defending these guys just because Trump doesn't like them. Everybody well, what, Trump doesn't like isn't a,
0: necessarily your ally. I want to go back to a point that Peter was made, and that, that is because you're talking about the you know the, the rule of law. We got one side of the table talking about the rule of law, and the other side sort of at least – fudging part of it or interpreting it differently. But a question is, if someone comes to the country illegally, they have broken a
3: law, correct?
0: Correct. Should they be punished in some way?
3: I think the law should be applied to those individuals. And, I mean, if the law dictates that they should be incarcerated or deported, there's a process. But I think if someone enters the country, um, you know, under a certain sort of visa or illegally and seeks asylum, then they are in a different pathway and they're entitled to have the asylum process proceed the way it should. Unfortunately, in most immigration offices across the country, the average time to have your asylum claim heard and actually adjudicated is on the order of six, seven, eight years. So what does the law provide for people who seek asylum? It provides that they are allowed to stay in the country while that process plays out. Are they, and, and, and
0: what are they allowed to do when they're in the country? Let's it, say they come to the country, they're stopped, uh, the, 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 the process of uh, – uh, of, of, of investigating them as to whether or not they're viable uh, and 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 legal, uh, they they pass the Asylees, criteria for right. asylum. Uh, what do they do? I um, mean, can they can they get a social security card? Mm-hmm. Can they work? Can they go to a hospital to get service? What can, what happens to those people?
3: I, I don't know. I don't know if you want to add to, but I'll say they can get certain credentials that identify them. They can get work permits and work on a temporary basis that needs to be renewed on an ongoing basis. Um, they can avail themselves of some state services that varies to some degree by state, um, but they are allowed to basically function um, in a way that obviously would permit them to to survive and their families to survive. Um, when I was in private practice, uh, I did several asylum cases and you know, all were really incredibly deserving and, you know, people were fleeing circumstances that literally threatened their lives. Uh, One person from Honduras was shot in the chest by a Honduran police officer seven times uh, at a traffic light. Another family from Sri Lanka um, was basically abducted by the Sri Lankan FBI uh, and the father was beaten in a dark cell. And I mean, they basically had to get to this country By any means necessary, so they could file this asylum claim.
1: And and, you know, we recently had the Illinois service veteran who was removed from the country. And Ray, you're a a veteran, and you know, how do you look at 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 someone who has served the country in the military and then telling them that they're not fit to stay in the country afterward? That case was wrong. All of this is the reason why we need to get back to focusing on comprehensive immigration reform, and Congress isn't doing its job. And
4: it's interesting; everybody agrees with that. Well, a rarity for me to say it's something the government should be doing more of. I did a few um, asylum cases myself, and I think the people we represented had real problems, but the the government lawyers were buried alive. Mm -hmm. It's just understaffed and underfunded. I prefer your point, Bruce, that that there's a
2: hypocrisy in what we prosecute and what we don't prosecute.
0: Next point, and that is uh, laws are passed. The people expect laws to be enforced, and when cities decide that they're not going to... Assist in the enforcement of laws. The Democrats seem to think that that's okay, and I wonder whether you agree with that. Sanctuary cities. Do you do you think that's a good idea?
1: I, I I think that there is a serious question when the federal government can force local law enforcement agencies to turn over people uh, who can then be whisked away without due process, and I think that. Um, from what I've seen, the city of Chicago has taken the right steps to lead the battle to protect sanctuary cities. I, I agree with that.
0: We could do another hour. We'll invite you back some other time for that. Uh, Randall Sanborn, thank you very much. Peter Hanna, thank you very much. Ray Anania, Michael Otis, we thank you all for joining us Bruce. on this week's edition of Beyond the Belt. Winter. thanks to Fritz Goldman and to Chris Wick and to Dan Dorfman for their assistance in the production of this program. Until next week, this is Bruce Dumont. Good night from
5: This spring, Goodman Theatre presents Having Our Say, the incredible true story of the Delaney sisters, the trailblazers, activists, and best friends who lived past 100, from the Jim Crow South to the Harlem Renaissance. Their historic journey is an inspiring story of triumphing over prejudice in times of social unrest. Having Our Say, directed by Chuck Smith at Goodman Theatre, May 5th through June 10th. Tickets at goodmantheater.org. Live from Chicago, it's Saturday Night Live, the experience.
0: Tuesday through Sundays and open late on Wednesday nights at the Museum of Broadcast Communications. Order tickets at museum.tv. Are you planning for the day when you can retire to your dream home in Palm Springs, California? A day surrounded by spectacular scenery, golf courses, a rich cultural life, and great dining? If you are, you'll need a guide, someone who knows where to look, an experienced broker, someone who knows the desert communities of Southern California and all they have to offer. That person is Brian Beard, who's been making dreams come true for over 13 years, selling over $100 million in real estate, including celebrity and architecturally significant homes to the rich and famous, and more importantly, to people just like you. Brian's company, Caldwell Banker, has agents worldwide, but Brian Beard is your man in Palm Springs. Call Brian now at 760 760- Seven nine nine seven zero nine six. That's seven six zero seven nine nine seven zero nine six. Or visit him online at BrianSellsTheDesert dot